You're listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes, a production of the Ephesus School Network. Blessed art thou, O Lord, teach me thy statutes. The company of the angels was amazed. When they Hi, this is Father Aaron Warwick with Jason Evert, and you are listening to the Teach Me Thy Statutes podcast, episode number 18. Today's reading is from John chapter 15, verses 17 through 27, and chapter 16, verses 1 through 2. The Lord said to his disciples, This I command you, to love one another. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all this they will do to you on my account, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It is to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. And you also are witnesses, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all this to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Father, we've discussed this briefly in a previous episode, but as I read this passage today, I think it bears some further discussion. And that is, in today's reading, Jesus is clearly telling the disciples to expect persecution and hardship and hatred from the world. And yet, in some Christian circles, their pastors are teaching them that God only wants us to be happy, that he never allows us to suffer or experience hardship, but rather he wants us to be wealthy and free of disease and so on. And this comes with the condition that we must have a faith that is unwavering. And if we do not have this level of faith, well, then it's our, it's our own fault. Jesus' teaching here, though, is, is clearly to the contrary. And I say all this to ask the question, how does our suffering graft into God's plan of salvation for mankind? Wow, there's a lot there, Jason, in, in those statements and the question. Uh, so let me just deal with them uh, one at a time. Uh, yeah, good idea. Sorry about that. There's a, a lot on my mind today. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's all good stuff. Uh, so I do want to make sure we cover it all. And let's start with your assertion that, as you said, in some Christian circles, uh, people are taught that God only wants us to be happy. Uh, look, I recognize that's true, but I'm not really wanting to focus on that. Because as you point out from today's passage, it's obviously a silly notion and one Jesus contradicts here explicitly. What I want to emphasize is that almost all Christians actually think this way. Uh, sure, it's not as extreme as what you uh, pointed out, uh, but I can't tell you the number of times that people come to me, whether in confession or pastoral counseling or just in general conversations I have with people, and they have this mindset deep within them that things will go well if they believe in God and try to live according to his commandments. So even with people who are not taught the way that you mentioned, uh, there's sort of this magical way of thinking, this sort of fairy tale, that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. 
I really believe it has more to do with the way we're raised than anything else. I mean, from the very earliest age, we implicitly, if not explicitly, teach kids that they get what they deserve. We reward them for good behavior. We punish them for bad behavior. At school and at work, it's the same thing as how we're raised at home. Rewarded for good behavior, punished for bad behavior. And this carries over then into how we view God. It's deeply ingrained into us, and that's hard to shed. And that's interesting. So how would you uh, recommend helping with that in terms of how we raise our children or uh, deal with our coworkers and so forth? Yeah, very good question, and one I've grappled with myself as a parent. And look, I'm not, I'm not claiming to have an answer. Uh, identifying a problem doesn't mean you have to have the solution. Uh, and in fact, in my own mind, I'm not sure there is a solution per se. I mean, we, we can't start uh, rewarding our kids for bad behavior and punishing them for good behavior. Yes, that, <laughs> that does seem to be counterproductive, Father. Right, right. But I think you have to understand that God's ways are not our ways. We do have to teach kids right from wrong. We do have to reward and punish and so forth. Yet as they grow older, we need to teach them Scripture in practical ways. So we need to stress that God is merciful to us when we fall short, and He will continue that way towards us, but only if we show mercy to others. We need to teach them to understand that God Himself transcends justice. And so while you don't ever punish good behavior— What you do is you teach them through your words and actions that you still love them when they make mistakes. Sometimes you really need to explicitly say this to them. Sometimes you need to tell them directly, you know what, I know your classmate Johnny has made some mistakes and irritated you, but you know, sometimes you've done that with me and I'm still kind to you and I love you and I overlook that. I want you to do the same thing with him. He's probably really struggling and that's why he acts that way. You need to show him some compassion and love. Uh, once in a while, you need to tell your kids, you know what, you have uh, you really haven't been behaving up to my expectations today, and I'm disappointed in that, but I'm going to take you all out for ice cream uh, just because I love you. You didn't earn this treat, but I do love you, and so I'm going to take you out, and I hope you'll show your appreciation by behaving better in the future. I think sometimes, I've I've mentioned this in sermons, and I think sometimes people don't know whether to take me seriously. Uh, but I hope they do. I hope they try it. I've done it before. And believe me, the kids, they actually hate it. It's, it's actually been, a, it was kind of surprising at first to see their reaction. I've had them argue not to go out for a treat after that because they know they're not deserving. And again, this mindset of good things happening when you do right and bad things happening when you do wrong runs deeply in us from a young age. Uh, but we can start to counteract that. So I guess that's one way, and and perhaps a very unique way, that people suffer as part of learning about their salvation, uh, which then leads into the second part of what I said at the beginning and and gets to the heart of my initial question. How does our suffering graft into God's plan of salvation for mankind? Yeah, this is of the utmost importance, and thanks for bringing us back around to that. Uh, The most important thing to say here is that a person needs to understand what the Bible, and specifically the New Testament, means by suffering. Unfortunately, we tend to think by default now that suffering related to Christ and the gospel means physical suffering. And for Christ, and certainly for the martyrs as well, that was definitely a part of it, but it was really a byproduct of the true suffering, the suffering that all of us must be willing to face if we are to be Christians. And what do you mean by that, Father? 
The suffering we embrace as part of our salvation, as part of God's plan of salvation for mankind, as you mentioned, is the suffering of shame. And by that I mean that we must be willing to be humiliated before our fellow men and sometimes even before our fellow religious men. That's primarily what we see in the life of Jesus. Again, the physical suffering on the cross is a byproduct of that primary suffering of shame, the suffering of one's reputation and honor. The cross was primarily a tool of shame, making someone a public spectacle for trying to rebel against the Roman rule. Sure, it caused physical pain and suffering, but only in so much as it would lead to further humiliation and degradation. It's interesting uh, you bring that up because I hadn't heard of this distinction prior to hearing you mention it before. Yes, unfortunately, it's something many people have lost sight of over the centuries. But if you look at the gospel and then even at our broader Orthodox tradition, you see the suffering of shame, of losing one's honor, is of much more significance and is the primary suffering one must be willing to face. For example, on the Feasts of the Cross, we read from Mark 8, uh, the famous taking up your cross passage, where Jesus says, and I'm quoting here, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. End of quote there. Uh, so you hear the emphasis being on the shame. So the taking up of the cross is very often misconstrued in modern times to mean to bear with some sort of physical pain and suffering. Uh, now, obviously, there can be a benefit to a person struggling through physical pain and suffering uh, and trusting in God. I'm not disputing that at all. But what I am saying is that suffering through an illness or a disease is not, technically speaking, not biblically speaking, taking up your cross. Taking up your cross is being willing to be shamed by others for following Christ's teaching. And the sad reality is that nothing has really changed today from 2,000 years ago. If you side with Christ by sitting with the so-called sinners, the outcasts, the disenfranchised, the poor, the foreigners, etc., then you're often shamed by people, and it seems most especially by people who say they're Christian or who are otherwise religious and self-identify as, quote, moral people. So to sum it up, uh, sometimes a person, like the martyrs, face death and physical suffering from taking up their cross, but this is just a byproduct of them being willing to be ashamed before their fellow human beings for following the way of Christ. Turning to my final question of the day in chapter 16, verse 1 of our passage today, our Lord says, I have said all this to you to keep you from falling away. So this concept of falling away is uh, somewhat foreign to many Christians, especially those uh, who live by the mantra, once saved, always saved. I've always had difficulty with that notion, and it's always led me to the question of, if this is true, that we cannot fall away, then how would that impact the way that we live out our lives? Father, would you weigh in on this? Yeah, this has come up in one form or another several times already on our podcast. I'm sure it'll come up again in the future. It's an important question uh, as it relates to salvation, and we're running out of time today, so I'll just be short and sweet with this answer. Uh, again, we have to understand that salvation is an inheritance. It's something that we can never earn, but it is something that we can lose if we do not live appropriately. Just as we can never earn an inheritance from our parents, but we can lose it if we displease them and they decide to take us out of their will. 
Likewise, we have to remember that salvation is free of charge, but with a charge. It doesn't cost us anything, but we have to follow the commandment of Christ to behave just as mercifully towards others as he did towards us. And if we cease to do that, then we fall away. Honestly, if people can just commit those metaphors and sayings to memory, and then over time start to understand what they mean, then you'll understand salvation according to Scripture. I do just want to add one thing, though, uh, based on a comment I saw in relation uh, to this approach that I outlined above, this approach of salvation as an inheritance is something uh, that you can never earn, but you can lose. I saw someone arguing against what I said on a previous podcast by pointing out, uh, for example, that in Ephesians, Paul talks about our salvation and the gift of the Spirit in terms of God giving us an earnest, as someone would do when they make a bid on a house and the offer is accepted, uh, but the buyer still has to be approved and go through the whole home buying process. The earnest shows that you are serious as a buyer and intend to follow through. And this is absolutely 100% true that Paul does use that term and speak in this way. But that in no way negates uh, what I mentioned earlier. In fact, it reinforces uh, what I said in the Q&A two episodes ago, episode 16, about the assurance of salvation. Yes, we are assured that God has done and will do his part, but we have to hold up our end of the deal. And so using the example of the earnest money in relation to Paul, note how an earnest actually works. The buyer puts down the earnest money to show that they're serious about the deal. However, that does not contractually obligate the buyer to finish the purchase on the home. The buyer can actually walk away from the deal for any number of reasons, and in some cases they may be required to forfeit the earnest money, meaning that they can't get it back. But in other situations, the seller doesn't hold up their end of the contract. Then the seller is actually contractually obligated to return the earnest money to the buyer. As always, uh, we have to follow the internal logic of the New Testament. And in the case of the earnest money, the buyer in the transaction of salvation, so to speak, is clearly Christ. That's why St. Paul in Ephesians and elsewhere refers to Christians as slaves of Christ. They're bought by Christ. And Christ then gives that earnest money for the slave, for the redeemed Christian, by giving them his Holy Spirit, which he referenced towards the end of the passage that you read today. But if we, his slaves, who have been given the earnest of his spirit, do not hold up our end of the deal, then Christ is not bound to finalize his contract of salvation with us on the great day of judgment. Thank you, Father. Today's discussion began with recognizing that, as Christians, most of us have been taught to expect rewards for good behavior and punishment for bad behavior. This mindset often translates into our expectation that our life will go well if we trust in God and follow His commandments. However, we must stress, both in our own life and in teaching our children, that God's ways are not our ways. We must recognize and teach that God is merciful to us when we fall short, but only if we show that same mercy to others. Failing to show mercy to others causes us to fall away. We then turn to the topic of suffering. Father Aaron explained that Scripture teaches us that true suffering is the result of shame. While we often think of suffering as something that is physical, and there can certainly be a benefit to this while also trusting in God, the emphasis in the New Testament is that in taking up our cross, we must be willing to be shamed by others for following the teachings of Christ. Thank you for listening to Teach Me Thy Statutes. We hope you tune in next week for a new episode.
Alleluia, glory to thee, O God. 